Hello and welcome to this podcast of Neonatal Conversations. This podcast has been created to improve understanding for neonatal and paediatric trainees, nursing and medical colleagues, and anyone who is interested in becoming more familiar with our boutique area of medicine. My name is Kath Carmo and I'm a neonatal intensive care specialist in Sydney, Australia. My practice is in the Grace Centre for Newborn Intensive Care and in neonatal retrieval as the Deputy Director of NETS New South Wales. Today my conversation is with the distinguished Professor Dame Jane Harding. Professor Harding obtained her medical degree at the University of Auckland. She then trained in fetal physiology on a Rhodes Scholarship, completing her Doctor of Philosophy at the University of Oxford. After specialist training as a paediatrician in New Zealand, she completed her FRACP in neonatology. Her postdoctoral training was as a Fogarty Fellow at the University of California in San Francisco. Professor Harding was appointed to the faculty of the University of Auckland in 1989 and was appointed Professor of Neonatology in 1997. She was a Deputy Vice-Chancellor for Research for the University of Auckland from 2008 to 2015 and is a member of the Life Path Research Group of the university's Liggins Institute. Professor Harding's research activities include clinical as well as basic physiological studies. Her main interests concern the interaction of nutrients and growth factors and the regulation of growth before and after birth, perinatal glucose regulation, and the long-term consequences of treatments given around the time of birth. So Jane, a very big welcome to you. Thank you, Kath. It's great to join you. Thank you for inviting me. So, Jane, I have a few questions to start with. How did you first come to medicine? What inspired you and what attracted you to neonatology? And after such a global training and noting that we all love and admire Jacinda Ardern and wish she was our Prime Minister, what drew you back to settle in New Zealand? I've never quite known why I was attracted to medicine in the first place. I decided while I was at high school that I wanted to be a doctor, and I don't quite know why that happened. I didn't really know what doctors did. I didn't have family or friends who were doctors. I just made up my mind that that was what I wanted to do. And then during my med school training and subsequently, I got hooked on paediatrics. I really liked the way children got sick very quickly and then got better very quickly Mm. and mostly they got better and had their whole lives in front of them you felt like you'd really made a difference and because I'd done my PhD in fetal physiology so I was sort of very familiar with the physiology of what was happening before birth and neonates seemed to me was just sort of applied fetal physiology Hmm. most neonates that we looked after were preterm they were really just fetuses who had to find a way of surviving. Yes. And so I think the paediatrics evolved into neonates because it was also fascinating how it all worked. Yes. Um, uh, coming back to New Zealand was partly a reaction to not enjoying the North American medical system. Right. I, found the the training and the people were wonderful. I loved San Francisco and the whole Californian lifestyle, but I loathed insurance companies telling me what we could and couldn't do to support families and babies. 
and I decided I didn't really want to practice there in the long term. And I came home, and in the end, New Zealand's home. It's a wonderful place. This is where my roots and my family are, and it's a very nice place to live and to practice, and that's not changed. Yes, um, that's very interesting, actually. Um, it's <clears throat> North America's loss and um, our gain in the Southern Hemisphere. So, Jane, you've really spent your career um, exploring the interactions between nutrients and growth factors in the regulation of growth before and after birth, perinatal glucose regulation, and the long-term consequences of treatments given around the time of birth. Can we start by just talking a little bit about what it is, what is a normal blood sugar for a baby, and when and why should we worry? And does it matter if babies have low blood sugars? Those are all really good questions, Cap, and although I've spent a lot of years working on this area, I'm not sure I have a good answer for them. Wow. We know that that babies before birth don't regulate their, regulate their blood glucose concentrations. They really just receive all their glucose across the placenta from the mother. Mm. So if mum's glucose goes up, the baby's goes up, and mum's goes down, the baby's goes down. And insulin before birth is really a growth hormone. It's not being used to regulate glucose levels. So after birth, that constant supply of glucose across the placenta stops when somebody cuts the cord. Mm. So that supply gets cut off, and the baby has to go through a really quite rapid metabolic transition. We all think about the cardiorespiratory transition after birth. You have to change the way your heart works and the way your lungs work. And you also have to change how your metabolism works. And in particular, babies need to turn off all those growth hormones, which include insulin, and turn on all those counter-regulatory hormones like glucagon and catecholamines and cortisol to bring glucose back up in the face of a loss of supply and to make glucose from other fuels, particularly fat and glycogen. Hmm. And it's not surprising that that takes a bit of time. Yeah. And in babies who are otherwise at risk, that it might not always work as well as it should. But even in a normal baby, uh, as far as we can tell, a perfectly well normal term newborn doesn't actually get into adult glucose regulation for maybe four or five days after birth. So it does take time mm. and it's not so To go back to your questions, what's a normal blood glucose level? It climbs slowly up until four or five days after birth. But we do know that in well babies, the mean glucose in the first day or two is around between three and four. And we're pretty confident that a glucose below 2.6 is a widely used number, 2.6 millimoles per liter. 2.6 is below, is around the 10th centile for normal babies. So levels right. below that are not necessarily a problem, but they are low. And that's a useful number, therefore, and very widely used as a sort of threshold for what should we worry about. Right. It's not to say that every baby has a problem with a glucose below that, but it's to suggest that below that we should not think that's a normal glucose. We should think, what's happening with this baby and should we be doing something about it? Hmm. <clears throat> and so what happens if babies have low blood sugars, if they're persistently below 
Well, the reason, the reason we worry about low blood sugars in babies is that glucose is the primary fuel for the brain. Hmm. And you and I also have brains that use glucose as our primary fuel, but we can make other fuels if there isn't enough glucose. And we have relatively smaller brains, so we have more to come and go on. In babies, in newborn babies, the brain is relatively big. It consumes almost all of the available glucose. Hmm. So in a baby, if glucose starts to fall, it's the brain that's going to suffer. And you and I can make alternative fuels, and we all know that there are alternative fuels for the brain, particularly ketones and uh, fatty ketones are the ones we hear most about, but also lactate. We're, we're reasonably confident now that babies do not make ketones in the first day or two. They simply can't do it. Yes, yes. Because they're still going through all that metabolic transition. So we know that some babies, if the glucose levels are low enough for long enough, they will suffer brain damage. And that can be very severe, can be convulsions, even death and permanent brain injury. So we do need to worry about it. Our difficulty is we don't actually know for sure how low the glucose has to be for how long in which babies to cause damage. So we end up treating them all at a level to try and prevent any of them getting brain injury. And yes. I think the helpful way of thinking about it hmm. is to think about it in the same way as we think about treating jaundice. So we know if the bilirubin gets high enough or long enough, it will cause connectorus, it will cause permanent brain damage. Right. But we don't know for any individual baby how high that is for how long to cause connectorus. So we end up treating lots of babies, putting them under phototherapy, to prevent the levels ever getting high enough to cause connectorus. And you have to have a margin of safety between when you think you need to start phototherapy and when the baby's going to start to seize with connectorus. Hmm. So I think that's an analogy for glucose. It's not that every baby's going to get into trouble with a glucose of 2.5, but you need a margin of safety between when the glucose is getting too low and when there's actually going to be brain injury. Yes, and I remember you um, speaking at a neonatal update in London once, and you said that um, there are effects that may not express themselves until the child is sort of, you know, in year six, year five or year six. Was that, is my memory serving me correctly? That's right. The, the evidence around what are the long-term consequences of mild and transient hypoglycemia, I think, is quite difficult. And a lot of it, of course, has done things like look at, you know, Bailey scores at age two. Mm -hmm. And what we think is now happening is that for mild and transient hypoglycemia, there can be subtle effects on function that are simply not apparent at that young age. They don't become apparent until the child's much older. And they become apparent with things like executive function and visual motor function. So subtle skills that you need for doing well at school you can't detect when the children are younger. Mm, yes. And when you said the insulin f functions mostly as a growth hormone, um, how, does that, um, how does that work when the baby's born and 
we're all fussing about looking at the insulin level in the presence of hypoglycemia. How does that, how should we be thinking about that? So I think it is helpful to try and think rather than about the blood glucose level to think about is this baby having trouble making the metabolic transition that we talked about. Yeah. In order to make that transition, the baby has to turn off insulin and turn on all those counter-regulatory hormones to get its glucose back up. Mm. And over time, we'll start making alternative cerebral fuels like ketones. They won't do that to start with. So the baby who's got a low glucose level and still has detectable insulin is clearly having trouble making that transition. Right. Okay, that's good. Most babies who have transient or even more significant neonatal hypoglycemia have problems with insulin regulation. The mechanism is different, but the fact is they end up with too much insulin and not able to turn that down when they need to. Right, so it could be part of normal transition. It's not some sort of abnormality going on with the pancreas, which I think some people often um, put it down to, that it's... uh, Well, not straight away. mm. I think, you know, there's no point in measuring insulin in a hypoglycemic baby on day one. It will be abnormal by definition because that's why they're hypoglycemic. Yes. When it's useful to measure the insulin is when you're a day or two out and you've got persistent or severe hypoglycemia, and then you're looking for other causes. And one of the first things you want to know is, is this a problem related to insulin regulation, or is it another problem related to glucose production? Well, I think you've just... In the um... first day or two, nearly everybody's got excess insulin. It doesn't have to be phenomenally high, but if you can detect any when the glucose is low, that's abnormal. Sure, I think um, you've just um, given given all those registrars who are listening who've um, forgotten to do the um, critical bloods at the first hypoglycemia on day one. You've just let them all off the hook, haven't you? That's great. <laughs> I don't think it don't think it makes any sense to be doing them on day one. Yeah, because they, by definition, almost by definition, will have abnormal insulin secretion. Great. There you go. I'll stop chiding my juniors. <laughs> Thanks, Jane. <laughs> um, all right, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you think is going on um, for the following babies from a metabolic sense. So firstly, the macrosomic baby in the infant of the uncontrolled diabetic mother. What's happening metabolically to that baby and how does the insulin respond in this setting of hypoglycemia? So big babies and babies of insulin, babies of diabetic mothers, who are sometimes the same, babies, but not always, In other words, babies aren't always infants of diabetics. But the reason they're big is that they've had excess supply of nutrients before birth. And usually that's glucose and fatty acids. So obviously if the mother's diabetic, it's mostly glucose and fatty acids. So the baby has been using insulin as a growth hormone. It's had lots of supply of nutrients, so it's increased nutrient increased insulin production to stuff all that extra nutrients into cells to make the baby grow. Mm. So you've got a pancreas that's hypertrophied. It's producing lots of insulin to deal with lots of nutrients coming across the placenta. So when that supply of glucose has stopped because somebody's cut the cord, 
you've still got a hyperplastic pancreas that's still producing too much insulin. So you've got straight hyperinsulinemia and remembering that you have to turn off insulin in order to turn on all those counter-regulatory hormones and produce ketones and do all those other things. Hmm. It takes time for that hyperplastic, hyperactive pancreas to get turned off. So those babies are usually hypoglycemic because they simply are producing too much insulin and haven't yet turned it off. Right. And so just takes, can I just take a day or three. Yeah, can I just recap that? So the mum's got high blood sugar levels and so therefore um, her high blood sugar is flows through to the baby and in response the baby uses insulin as their growth hormone um, to grow bigger and lay nutrients put the glucose into cells mm-hmm. right so you've got a pancreas that's overproducing insulin and then you suddenly stop the glucose supply and the pancreas takes time to turn that insulin off right so um, we really need to um, allow the pancreas to settle down and not provide um, excessive substrate in the first few postnatal days then as the baby's trying to transition from that setting. That's right. And there's a fine line to be walked between keeping the glucose up yeah. and not overdoing it. Hmm, interesting. Okay. We might talk about treatment a bit later on. Um, so then conversely, the other baby that we most often see with hypoglycemia are those infants who, as a fetus, have been developing in the setting of placental insufficiency. So I, I guess there's been a substrate loss flowing into the placenta and into the baby, and so they're born growth restricted. Um, so what's happening for their glucose metabolism and response to insulin? So we're all taught, I'm sure, that the reason that small babies get hypoglycemic is they don't have much in the way of fuels, they don't have much fat and glycogen. Mm. And that is true, but we're beginning to understand that they nevertheless, their fundamental problem is probably still one of insulin regulation. And the way we're thinking that works is that limited substrate supply, Mm. and particularly glucose and oxygen, results in a fetus just as it does after birth in a a catecholamine response, so an increase in cortisol, but particularly adrenaline and noradrenaline, as a response to the shortage of supplies. Now, those are very effective hormones at suppressing insulin production. That's actually what you want to have happen after birth. That's the normal process, right? You put up catecholamines and you suppress insulin. So that's happening before birth in babies who are growth-restricted. So they've got suppressed insulin production and they don't grow now you get born you've turned off that catecholamine surge because the baby now can breathe Mm. catecholamines go down so you've released that suppression of insulin so suddenly you get a an overproduction of insulin as a response to the release of catecholamine suppression Right, so the result is the same, mm. you end up with too much insulin. Not I see. as much usually as the big babies, but still more than is appropriate for the low glucose levels. Mm. So you've got the same problem of needing to turn down insulin regulation, 
I think it's it's simpler to think about most babies with neonatal hypoglycemia in the first couple of days as simply having too much insulin. Yes. They might get there by different routes, but they act like they've got too much insulin, and that's the way to think about it. Yeah, yeah, so it's quite fascinating. So in utero, they're quite stressed, and they have um, insulin-suppressing hormones, and Correct. and so therefore they don't produce enough insulin, therefore they don't grow. And then when they're born, um, it, presumably it's not stressful once they're born and we are providing them with substrate. And they, so you're saying once they're born, they're no longer stressed and so their stress hormones all settle down. That's right. The catecholamines fall. Yeah. Okay. And then the insulin rises mm-hmm. and causes hypoglycemia. Hmm, that's very fascinating. Um, Probably aggravated by the limitations in substrate supply and so on, but from the perspective of how to think about these babies as a group, I think it's easier to just think about them as having too much insulin yes. for, for their low glucose levels at the time. Yes, okay, and we'll talk about how we treat them later, that's good. Okay, so now both groups of these babies seem are fairly obvious in the neonatal nursery, um, and, and I guess we would most units would have some sort of protocol um, stating that you need to glu- you know, provide glucose monitoring for those groups. But there are babies who suffer hypoglycemia who we just don't seem to pick up until they're symptomatic. I know we recently had a baby in our nursery where the expected birth weight was probably 500 grams more than the actual birth weight at 41 weeks. The, it was a baby boy and he weighed 3.5 kilos but his parents were both South Pacific Islanders, and so he probably should have been more like four kilos. And he had late signs of wasting in that he had subcutaneous fat loss over the thighs. And, um, you know, Heather Jeffrey was probably one of my early um, teachers in neonatology, and she I call that the Heather Jeffrey sign because she taught me that, that we should be monitoring these babies um, for hypoglycemia. This baby went to the postnatal ward and he wasn't monitored, unfortunately. And in fact, he didn't present until he was having intractable seizures. And unfortunately, he has suffered a significant brain injury and uh, has a poor outcome on MRI. We don't really know how bad, I guess, his developmental outcome will be just yet. But it just seems so preventable and so tragic to see in the nursery. So how would you recommend we screen for um, hypoglycemia and how can we ensure that this sort of event doesn't occur? And I'm particularly interested given that this was a a baby who had, um, I think he had Maori heritage actually, and and his mother was Maori and his father had another South Pacific Island heritage. But given the New Zealand population that you'd be familiar with, um, how how do you screen those babies? The groups who are generally recommended for screening are big babies, small babies, infants of diabetics and preterm babies. Mm. They're all fairly easy to recognize until you get into the detail of, well, how big is too big and how small is too small? Mm. And there's no one right answer to that. But in what data we have, we've looked carefully at whether it makes any difference whether you use absolute cutoffs or centile cutoffs. And our, our recommendation is that you use both 
In other words, our guidelines, for example, for small babies is less than 2.5 kilos or less than 10th centile on customized centiles. So customized means you're taking into account the size of the mother, mm. how big the baby ought to be. Right. Um, and I would guess that in the example you're talking about, that baby would have been small on customized centiles. So I think it's useful having both. And the way we have found has improved um, glucose screening immensely is to have a system where the, the customized centiles are automatically calculated. Right. So in New Zealand, do you have a customized centiles for um, the Maori population as opposed to the perhaps um, more Anglo-Celtic population? Well, customized centiles, the calculator asks amongst other things about the ethnicity of the mother. Right. So it varies so that the thresholds vary depending on the ethnicity of the mother. Yes. Yes, that sounds like just online calculators that are widely available. As soon as we made them automatic, that's how you enter the the birth weight data in the delivery unit. It automatically calculates you the customized centile, and that makes a big difference to the efficiency of screening. Right, that sounds um, amazing. The other groups that are often missed, and I think they, at least in our experience, might be a a bigger problem but that might be because we're used to using customized centiles is the babies who have never fed very well and go home yes so the babies you know we're all familiar with them you know they don't feed very well they perhaps get a formula feed or two because they're not feeding very well and before they've really established breastfeeding or established feeding at all they go home and maybe somebody's done a glucose or two and they look fine and they go home and then they come back the next day or the day after with seizures mm. and they're hypoglycemic. And we think, and the reports out of the UK suggest that um, there's been a review of the litigation related to hypoglycemia, and I hate to use that as a database, but the mm. fact is that one of the reports out of that data set was that a very common reason for missed hypoglycemia that poten potentially could have been changed was checking glucose on babies who are not feeding well, and in particular, making sure they've, got, they've had their glucose checked on the feed on which they're going to go home. So the babies had the last two feeds before they go home are formula feeds, and then they go home and only have breast milk. Yeah. So Without knowing if they can keep their glucose up with just feeding are the ones that I think we perhaps need to pay more attention to. Yes, I, I think it's um, something we'd all like to work towards preventing because it is awful when you see those babies come back. Sure. So uh, they are very disturbing, and they do come. You know, we do see one every so often, and yeah, and they're, they're devastating. Tip of the iceberg. You know, maybe there are more babies out there who are doing the same thing and perhaps not getting symptomatic with them. That's right, and then their executive functioning later on is not great. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so now moving on to treating these babies, um, I think we'll, so. We've sort of talked a little bit about screening um, and when it should commence and on what babies. But what is the best treatment strategy for the blood sugar, whilst also being baby friendly and supporting breastfeeding? Well, just to to finish off with the screening, the issue of when you should start. Hmm. Um, most international recommendations say 
not before one to two hours of age. Some of them say as late as, you know, at the second feed. But the point to remember is that in a normal baby, you'd expect glucose to fall in the first hour or two while they make that metabolic transition. So you don't want to wait so long that you've waited for the baby who's got a glucose of zero at four hours. Mm. But you do want to give them time to fall and come back up. Because if you measured them all at about half an hour, they, they're probably all below. Yes. So my point is just don't do it straight away. Even if you're worried about this baby, wait till at least one hour, and our recommendation is two hours. If for the first glucose, no matter how worried you are, because otherwise you're just going to detect a whole lot of forward falling glucoses that are just going to turn around and come up again if you leave them alone. Right, so so what you're saying there is that the normal metabolic transition should be complete in most babies by two hours. It's not complete, but you should have a glucose back up above 2.6 by then. Right, okay, yes, and then it will slowly rise over the next few days. Remember, 2.6 is the 10th centile by then. Yes, yes. And it should slowly keep rising after that. Right, okay. Sorry, that was a slight distraction on screening. You were actually asking about treatment. Yeah, that's all right. So say at two hours you find the blood sugar is 2.4, what should we do? Yeah, so in a a baby baby whose mother is planning to breastfeed, presumably have already started breastfeeding well before then. Mm. Um, So for most babies, the recommended treatment would be dextrose gel plus a breastfeed. So 40% dextrose gel is now known to be reasonably effective and very safe. It's simple, it's cheap. You simply rub it inside the baby's cheek. It's not a substitute for breastfeeding. It helps get the glucose up and encourage breastfeeding. So a dose of dextrose gel plus a breastfeed. Recheck the glucose after half an hour. Repeat if necessary. And then think about other treatments after that if you're still not willing. Mm. The baby's going to be formula fed, obviously giving them formula is the solution, straight up. But to encourage breastfeeding, the whole point of dextrose gel is to support the baby's glucose and encourage breastfeeding. Yes, and I'm sure getting your glucose up a little bit allows you to breastfeed. One of the questions I often get is, well, why don't we express breast milk and give that to the baby? Then we at least know what they're getting. And I know there's been a lot of attention on expressing breast milk before the birth, particularly for women with diabetes. Yes. Our, our data suggests that giving expressed breast milk makes no difference to the glucose level. Now, that sounds weird, mm, but that's that what the data weird. see. Mm. And I think what that's just saying is there aren't very many calories in breast milk in the first day or two. Yeah. What matters is breastfeeding. And we think that what's going on is there are other things that happen during breastfeeding. There are a lot of growth factors, a lot of hormones, a lot of regulatory signals that encourage that metabolic transition. So don't bother to get the mother to express and give the baby the breast milk. Just breastfeed it. Right, and use some gel. And, and I'm uh, yeah, the um. Raising the blood sugar would probably make a poor feeder feed more effectively, exactly. I would imagine. Exactly. Yeah. 
So I guess by the time the baby with recalcitrant hypoglycemia has made it into the neonatal intensive care unit, if those measures have failed, it's really tempting to use higher concentrations of glucose. And, you know, occasionally, certainly in my state of New South Wales, people use up to extraordinary degrees like 25% glucose. But I, I guess from what you're saying, it sounds a little bit like that would be just be driving the insulin response. And um, so how do you think we should be managing these scenarios from an intensive this care the, point of view? It's kind of tightrope we were talking about. You yeah. need to give the baby some glucose to get its blood glucose up to save its brain. But you don't want to be giving so much glucose that you're just driving insulin secretion in a baby who's having trouble with insulin secretion couple of recommendations and, and there, there's no simple solution to that problem you mm. have to kind of feel your way but a couple of recommendations we don't think that unless the baby's seizing and has an unrecordable sugar we don't think you should hurry too much to get the glucoses up so getting the glucose up over an hour or two is okay mm. um, in other words Probably there's no need to give a bolus unless you've actually got a symptomatic sick baby. If you get an IV up and running and, and the glucose is coming up, you can give it a little bit of time. Um, not too much time. You do want it up, right. say, within an hour or two, but yeah. it doesn't have to be up in five minutes. Right. The other thing is if you really are having trouble with having to give lots and lots of glucose and you've still got trouble. These babies are often very unstable and very difficult to manage. We are doing some work on whether um, diazoxide might be helpful in those babies. So generally, we think of diazoxide, which directly improves insulin or suppresses insulin secretion, so it's treating the cause of the problem. Mm. We usually think of that as something as a much later treatment yes. in babies who've got diagnosed hyperinsulinemia. Yeah. I don't think we're at a point where we should be using it earlier except in the context of a trial. We are exploring that in the context of randomized trials because it would seem logical to treat the problem, which is the insulin. Hmm. So, I mean, we would usually... Uh, I guess, start some glucagon and then transition to diazoxide. So what would be the advantage of using going straight in with diazoxide and not using glucagon? Well, diazoxide treats the problem. It's easy to give. It's cheap. And you can give it orally. All of those things are quite handy. Right, yes, in, in that you can, you know, get the baby breastfeeding, etc. I guess... Um, exactly. Exactly, but I, I, I'm just mentioning that because it's a, it's a research area at the moment, not because we're ready for doing that, that doing it. Yeah. Doing. Yeah. But so I mean, perhaps, I... Think, perhaps thinking about diazoxide sooner rather than later is what I'm flagging. Right. The other thing, glucagon does work really well, at least for a period of time. Yes. It's particularly useful if you've got one of these terribly unstable babies, and particularly the big infant of a diabetic where you're having trouble with lines and you've just got things semi-stable and then the drip tissues and you're having trouble getting a central line in and they're just all over the place mm. glucagon will often buy you some time and you can use it im if you haven't got 
an IV line in, and it will buy you a few hours to just cool it, get things sorted out, get the most expert person to get a line in the right place and get started again. So mm. I think we don't use glucagon enough as a, a short-term solution for an acute problem, particularly a, a practical problem like I can't get a line in. Mm. So I guess from a retrieval point of view, we would often get referred babies who have 25% glucose running um, people. I mean, usually, often what happens in, in my home state is that they will start on 80 mils per kilo of fluid a day, then they'll go to 100, then they might go to 15% dextrose, then they'll go to 20, then they'll go to 25% mm-hmm. um, sorry, glucose per day. So they're quite, and then they persist with that for some time and so we we are referred babies who are quite waterlogged their sugars are still low and and yet you know from our point of view we would sort of think giving less substrate and glucagon earlier might have been a better pathway for the baby yes it may well have been i think we just don't have trials in this area and and that's where we're we're doing some work at the moment yes on those really difficult out of control babies who are perhaps getting on day two, day three, day four. Hmm. And, and I guess they're not that common. Um, with good obstetric care, etc., they they're sort of a bit more sporadic than they used to be. And so I think people get a bit out of practice with managing them. Thankfully, I think that's right. And those babies yeah. are often growth restricted rather than the big infants of diabetics. Right. Who, who go on this sort of persistent hyperinsulinism. Yes, yes, yes. That's changed my way of thinking a little bit in that um, I would have thought, I mean, glucagon sort of releases the baby's own, you know, your own natural storage, doesn't it? It releases glycogen, etc. And, you know, my traditional thinking was that glucagon in a small baby probably wasn't the right thing because they didn't have enough substrate. So giving those babies substrate made more sense to me. But I guess you've changed my way of thinking a little bit in that the glucagon will work to suppress the insulin even in those babies. It, it will help. It might not solve your problem, but it probably will help with stability, hmm. which is often a big problem. Hmm. Okay. Oh, so that's that's quite fascinating, actually. So, I mean, I, I guess one of the other difficulties we I find when I'm in the intensive care is then, so I've got a baby who's a large infant of a diabetic and they're, on glucagon 20 and we're sort of slowly weaning that and we've got you know dextrose running at 12 percent you know when when do i allow the I, i'm very um i like to have my babies having something in their tummy so if there's breast milk available giving them something but a lot of people i know are very um it, it's a tricky area to know when to start feeding them because often you then you if you start feeding them too quickly or too early and try and get all the lines out you end up with rebound hypoglycemia. So I think, I mean, maybe I'm answering my own question in that you have to just do everything slowly. You do have to do everything slowly, but I would push for feeding them as soon as you possibly can, and particularly breastfeeding for the reasons I've just mentioned. It's less about providing the substrate. So why don't we feed these babies? Because we're worried they're going to get unstable because we're giving them more more substrate and we don't know how much they're getting. Yeah. they're not getting much substrate. What they're getting is a whole lot of regulatory factors. Right. And that's really helpful. And there's a lot of gut peptides, you know, glucagon-like 
peptides in the gut yes. that will help with glucose regulation, and they're stimulated by feeding. So I think we should be much less obsessed about counting how many calories they're getting and just say, feed the baby, regardless of how much calorie it is or isn't getting. Mm. won't get a whole lot. I'm not talking formula, I'm talking about breastfeeding. Yes. won't get huge amounts of volume, so you don't need to worry too much about the volume. But it will get a whole lot of regulatory factors that will help with that insulin suppression problem. And, and do you mean, um, I mean, I, I, I'm imagining a baby who's um, on an open care system and looking very unwell and probably can't suck because maybe they're ventilated because of their respiratory, cardiorespiratory problems because of the diabetic heart, perhaps. Um, mm-hmm. So is it part of the actual mechanism of breastfeeding or is it just breast milk on the gut is causing all those probably regulatory both. hormones? It's probably both, but I think some breast milk is better than nothing. Yes. Oh, I love that. That's great. Yes. So I think early feeding, mm. as much milk. as you can, and yeah. recognising that some of these babies are terribly sick and it's just not a sensible thing to do, but yeah. when you can, as soon as you can, will help. Mm. That's fantastic. Thanks, Jane. Um, Remember, you're also giving other substrates. You're giving longer-lasting substrates. So fats and proteins in the milk are much longer-lasting substrates than glucose. Yes, so, so a, a reserve between feeds. Yes, yeah, so actually, um, we should be try. We should try and be a bit more aggressive with our breast milk directly to the gut, and then manage the glucagon and the fluids around that um, capacity, rather than um, be timid about in, introducing feeds. I guess absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So, Jane, that's all been very fascinating for me. I think I've learned a lot. I'm going to have to listen to this podcast myself again a couple of times, I think. Um, So before we go, I always finish with a couple of questions that I ask everyone. So firstly, where would you like to see the research go to next and and how do you think we can improve things for babies and their families in the future? So the two areas we're focused on, I've already mentioned one of them. Could we do something about directly suppressing insulin secretion in these babies and we're exploring diazoxide. oxide mm. and, and the other area is obviously prevention and we've we've recently completed a big trial of dextrose gel for prevention that should be published very soon and i think the question is going to be in the babies we know are at risk you know we all know the things we do already to reduce the risk of hypoglycemia things like keeping the baby warm and early feeding but would giving them some some gel early on just transition support them through that transition? So that's the other area we're working on at the moment. Mm, that's quite interesting, isn't it? It's like giving a, a dose of vitamin K to support the transition to coagulation. Um, right. it, that's an interesting thought, and I, and I guess. Um, you know, just stimulating the the trainees that might be listening that aren't working with you directly, I guess, um, looking at that group of babies that go home with a poor feeding. As you said earlier, they need um, screening and <clears throat> perhaps um, thinking about as well. Yeah, I think particularly the ones that haven't been feeding well, so they've had some formula. You know, are they going home on what they've been on? Hmm. Are you confident that that's going to stay put? Yes, that seems like it would be a very easy intervention um, sort of trial, wouldn't it? 
Um, all right. Um, so now I ask everyone this. How, how, has, how has gender affected your career? Um, you're one of the most inspiring women that I know in the in the business. And um, what advice would you give to younger women um, who want to make a career in neonatology and or research? Go for it. <laughs> I, I think I think the important thing is to be sure that you are doing something that you really love. So if this is what really inspires you, if babies are what make you think of, these are very special and this is really what I want to be doing, then stick to that because the long training and the disappointments and the challenges and the exhaustion and your colleagues and all that stuff are going to happen no matter where you are. What's going to sustain you is this really matters to me. So if you're doing what you really love, then that's the first critical question. And then after that, find really supportive colleagues who will share some of those ups and downs and who will support you when things are not going well. And those are often mentors and seniors, but also colleagues. They're often people you train with or people you meet along the way. Mm. And make sure you keep in touch with those people because they are what, what will sustain you in the long term. Mm, that's very good advice. Mm. Thanks, Jane. So thank you very much for having a conversation with me across the ditch. Um, it's a pleasure been such a pleasure to speak with you and um, you're such a wise leader in neonatology I love hearing you talk and we all appreciate your great intellect and patient and gentle approach to our small patients so thank you so much for the work you do every day and have been doing for many years um, to make the lives of children better and thanks for having a neonatal conversation with me today thanks Kath it's been a pleasure if you have enjoyed this podcast or have questions please head to the webpage www.neonatalconversations.com where there are links to the references used in this podcast and where we might be able to continue the discussion. You can also leave feedback or commentary on Facebook, Neonatal Conversations, or on Twitter at Neoconversation. We would really appreciate any feedback you might have. Thanks so much for listening and thank you all for caring for the critically ill newborn. Thank you.